It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rulebook, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Brian Rowley, and this is The Big Rethink. Today's episode is about retail and real estate, how the two coexist, and what's in store for these industries in 2022. Our guest, Chris Ressa, is a retail expert, real estate guru, host of the Retail Retold podcast, and chief operating officer at DLC Management Corp. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. So, Chris, let's start off. I mean, you you know, in your experience and knowledge of the retail and real estate spaces, you, you obviously work with a variety of different industry leaders and customers. C- can you talk a little bit and give our, our listeners sort of a brief overview of what led you to become a leader in the real estate and, and sort of this whole retail conversation? Yeah. So to back up a little bit, DLC owns shopping centers. So okay. if you were to own apartment buildings, you or me might be the tenant. Our tenants are Walmart, Starbucks, TJ Maxx, or the local pizzeria in your neighborhood. So we're dealing with a lot of different sectors of retail and a lot of different people in the space at different sizes. We are one of the larger retail real estate owners of open air retail, as we call it. So we don't own any enclosed malls. We own shopping centers that are either anchored by grocery stores or what we call power centers that are anchored by a Target, TJ Maxx, Dick's Sporting Goods. And then you'll see like on a freestanding building in the parking lot of Starbucks, Chipotle, those types of properties across the country. So pretty much the eastern half of the country. We've done business out west, but we focus on the east. I started my career as a corporate real estate professional on the retailer side. So I got to see how big retail chains look at corporate real estate, growth strategy, how they pro forma stores. And that was at Sherwin-Williams. They're a Fortune 500 company, excellent company. I had a bit of a more passion for real estate than I did retail, paint, and I morphed onto the landlord side. And you know, DLC has grown since. And so the scale that we have in about, it's about a two and a half to $3 billion portfolio, depending on when you're valuing the assets. And that scale has enabled me to connect with a lot of industry leaders in both the retail space, the equity markets on Wall Street and real estate community. So interesting. Um, so, so let's talk about this for a second, because obviously, you know, the pandemic has obviously changed uh, or, or I believe it's sort of changed a little bit. Right. The way that this industry operates. So can you talk a little bit about that? How, how do you see the commercial real estate industry, um, specifically retail spaces? How have you seen that changed as a result or, or even evolve, let's say, uh, as a result of the pandemic? Yeah. So let me take you back to March of 2020 to start there. So there's three partners at DLC, myself, our chief investment officer and our CEO. And to think about it, myself and our chief investment officer split the company in half. We call the side that I work on the value creation side and the side he works on the, the money finance. So it's 
acquisitions, dispositions, our capital markets, accounting, all roll up to him. To me, it's our leasing team, our construction team, our marketing team, and our property management team roll up to me. So the people who are tenant-facing, who are making deals with tenants, whether that's in Starbucks office making a deal, Walmart, or in a local pizzeria making a deal, and we're building it, we're running the properties once we acquire them. So if you fast forward to March of 2020, we all became in a business that we probably took for granted, which was the rent collection business, right? That's really what we were in in March and April. And what that really means is we were making deals. Uh, at We were making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deals on top of a normal deal flow. So the transaction volume last year was insane, whether it was we were working on a rent deferral, or we were working on something with all these retailers. And I would tell you what it, what is interesting. We were working on rent deferrals with our small businesses, and we, ha- we created a program really quick to try to help them. And we had about 100 join the program. What I found fascinating was the entrepreneurial spirit. If you were going to give the tenant an abatement, they'd surely take it. But the small and local businesses, just the mindset, a lot of them, we offered this deferral program and they're like, eh, appreciate the offer, not taking that deal. It was fascinating because they viewed it as going into debt and they were like, I'm going to work on getting PPP and I'll try to solve it that way. Appreciate the help. Now, we did have 100 that participated, but I was fascinated by the amount of entrepreneurs that didn't take that offering. On the national tenants, that was a little bit of a different ball game. That led to a lot of negotiation. And so what we did internally is, you know, we've got thousands of tenants. So we assigned accounts to different people. We had people not normally in the deal-making world working on these deals. And what was transpiring was, you know, we might give a rent deferral or maybe even a rent abatement to a, a retailer and the retailer would probably give something in return. Maybe it was better non-monetary clauses in the lease. Maybe they said, okay, give us April, May, June free and we'll extend the lease right here, right now for three more years, even though we already have, we still have six years left. So there was horse trading going out uh, around in scale. You know, in March, I was literally working 18, 20 hours a day. There was so much going on trying to fortify the portfolio. At the end of the year, we ended up with over 90% rent collections in the retail space, which was pretty fascinating. Now, our new deal leasing volume definitely went down, right? There was a lot less retailers opening stores last year. But the two things that we did, which was unfortunate, but the two things we did were we fortified the portfolio by modifying leases that 10 years down the road made the the leases stronger, more credit worthy, and we collected the rent. This year has been all about growth. And so that's the background. So you said, you know, how has it changed? I think before you talk about that is what we were dealing with in 2020. And that's what we were dealing with, right? A, A bunch of packages of deals, whether it was with Starbucks, Walmart, whomever, 
trying to get these through. And if you think about it, I'm not the only landlord. There was a million landlords doing a lot of the same. So it was a really crazy time. In 2021, and even the back half of 2020, it started to pivot where people were coming out of their house, retail sales were soaring. Public retailers were putting up numbers that were astounding. And it gave retailers really, really strong confidence. And they started opening and, you know, the spigot to open stores. In America this year, we will open more stores than we close. And what I, I just came back from the ICSC convention. It's held once a year, formerly known as the International Council of Shopping Centers, now known as Innovating Commerce Serving Communities, where I had two days where I lost my voice. Every 30 minutes, I was in a meeting with a new retailer. <laughs> it was the best show I've ever had since before 2005. Never had more retailers come to our booth that we set meetings with them, go, listen, we need stores. What do you have that we haven't seen before? What do you have that we have? We need stores. Um, retailers are innovating, pivoting, and it's an interesting time. If you would ask me, would that have been the case? There was no way I could have predicted that in March of 2020, but it is a really interesting surprise. Uh, the big changes, I think, you know, that's a whole lot of backstory for if you ask the big changes. First thing is construction costs are making this really challenging because if you want to turn a McDonald's into a Panera Bread, there was a price and then there was a rent. And now that's totally that that math equation is very different today, driven by supply chain shortages, driven by labor shortages. This is a really big conundrum. I think it's 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 interesting. You, you mentioned you touch on a couple of things. I mean, I think this industry is facing a lot of what many are facing, right? I mean, the supply chain is a challenge that we're all sitting against, sure. right? We we all have that. Um, construction costs another factor, right? That that many are are dealing with limited of supply of you know people who are trying to get jobs done. Supply is a problem, so they're pulling people off jobs to move to other jobs. The point that's interesting to me, and and I want to step back on it. We'll come back to this for a second, but. The the entrepreneurial spirit that you touched on, I think, is really kind is really fascinating, right? Because, you know, we've all been put in a position to become more agile as a result of what's happening. But to see people who are in that entrepreneurial startup point walk away from some some deals because of the influence of what they think might be happening in terms of getting themselves in debt is actually a really interesting topic. So I, I know I asked you a loaded question and I want to try to hone in on this a little bit because, you know, I know that there is a lot of things that are changed. Let me ask you this because I think this is probably uh, might be an easier thing for you to, 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 to really get us to is of what you've seen as a result of some of these changes, what are some of the trends that have emerged that you think are here to stay? Let, let, let's, because I know there's a lot that's changed. I know your world was turned upside down, right? So, so, so what do you think is, what trends do you think are here to stay? Whether you're in commercial real estate, you're in retail, you're in the tech industry, the hybrid work model is clearly here to stay. I think that impacts retail significantly though. One of the things that retailers used to, they, they 
they're very sophisticated, the national retailers. They have, they've got models that are super sophisticated. And one of the things that they've used for a long time is what is the daytime pop, right? It's very easy mm -hmm. to order demographics and get here's in a five mile radius. Here is how many people live here, what their income is. You just pay for the data and it's pulling from census data. It's, it's not that hard to get that. But one of the things that was interesting is they used to use the daytime pop because that is who's there during the day but doesn't live there. What does mm -hmm. that mean? Who works there, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know that we have a pure answer on daytime pop. We're using location analytics today, which is tracks mobile devices so you can see foot traffic, but it's changing. Every time there's an announcement on like hybrid, 20% workforce, this, go back to the office, the daytime pop is changing. And so if you were a retailer that that was an important statistic for, I think that's really confusing now. And if you were relying, if it was a luxury, a nice to have, probably not impacting you. But if you needed that office pop, then you were in trouble um, today. And if you look at the, what we call the urban high street markets, whether that's Times Square, Union Square, New York City, Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, and you look at uh, Lincoln Road in Miami, Michigan Avenue in Chicago, the Strip in Las Vegas, these famous retail meccas, majority of them, most of my centers are back or ahead of 2019 foot traffic. Those markets are not, and a lot more people live there than where I own property. It's because two reasons. They used to have international tourists, which is significantly down, and they had a significant daytime pop which is clearly significantly down. So foot traffic in those markets is, is, is down significantly. And there's a lot of discussion on how to get that back and what people are doing. <clears throat> I saw something I think that placer.ai put out. The closest one back is the strip in Las Vegas. And that's because the casinos are back open. So those workers are there. And it's a highly domestic traveled place versus the other ones I mentioned. But other than that, it's, it's, it's quite astonishing, the foot traffic in those markets, especially when you compare the increase in foot traffic in suburban markets. So if you wanted to pick out one that I think is fascinating is hmm. the hybrid work model. I was talking to a fitness chain called F45. They are a tenant in one of our shopping centers. And I asked him, you know, what business operation thing has it changed? And he said, well, now I have to do daytime classes. Usually we had classes in the morning, we had classes in the night. Well, now the customer wants to be able to come at lunch because they're home and work out. So that's changed our whole model. And I was like, wow. So daytime pop is one that I think is really interesting. Yeah, it sounds almost like it's more focusing or moving towards what is pop in general, right? Because whether it's day or evening or wherever the timing happens, to your point, I mean, even as businesses, right, that 
level of flexibility that we need to create for people to do work or what their work hours look like is shifting. So obviously their free time is shifting. I, I mean, I know, uh, you know, myself, I work from home now and at lunch, you know, I'll go for a bike ride or a walk or whatever the case may be, which is before I was in an office and I was, I was staying there. Right. So right. I think that's interesting. You know, one of the things, um, you mentioned that you've opened more stores than you've closed, which is is kind of a fascinating piece to me. And I'd love to talk about that because myself sort of, you know, I know that there's sort of this shift and I know you've talked about this, right? This online retailer shift to physical retail spaces, right? That's that's something that you're seeing happening and, and, and people, myself included, right? Uh, are almost led to believe through some of what we see that actually the opposite is happening. Can, can, can you talk a little bit about this trend um, and, and, and sort of what's happening and perhaps, you know, sort of how it is reshaping this industry? Yeah. So there's a, a lot in that. So I could go through a million reasons, but so let's, <laughs> the first thing on more stores opening than closing. Yeah. Clearly, federal government intervention with PPP funds certainly helped businesses make it through, right? There was no doubt that the that helped. I think the whole mass closures you were hearing in March and April by and large didn't happen with the exception primarily of some food and beverage and there was national retailer bankruptcies. Those bankruptcies were probably going to happen at some point in time, just accelerated by the pandemic, Mm -hmm. right? So, but by and large, the amount of closures, I think, at least compared to what Headline News was saying, was uh, really different than Headline News expected. So there's a couple of things. At the end of the day, Online is extremely competitive right now. So approximately 85%, 86% of all retail sales are still done in a physical store. Hmm. Okay. So I think in Q2, it was 86.3% of all retail sales done in a physical store. That's a big number. Yes. So the, And if you think about that, we've had, we've had digital and online for a long time. And last year, all these people who were trained to shop online, that's what I keep hearing. Mm-hmm. They're still shopping in a store majority of the time. So we can talk about a, a, little, a couple of reasons why, but of that 15%, 16% of all retail sales done online, and I think this is the, this is the, the punchline here, 65% of those sales are done by 10 companies. Amazon, Walmart, Target, right? So when we're talking about like online sales, we're talking about in general, a very few amount of companies, even though there are way more online retailers than there are physical retailers who are fighting over a very small pie. And then we talk about profitability. If Brian and Chris want to open up Brian and Chris's t-shirt shop. The cost of entry is clearly cheaper online. We can do that. We can make a couple bucks. Yep. The minute you want to scale, it's way cheaper to be in a physical presence. Typically we find when 
when online businesses, they get about like 10, $15 million in revenue. You start shipping to multiple markets. You start having to build warehouses, distribution centers, infrastructure, hiring people, which they didn't have to do when it was just Brian and Chris. It starts to really hurt to get the profitability. Amazon, it took like 20 years to get profitable and their margins are still like this. So these companies... Wall Street's not going to give a pass, neither are the VCs, to all these millions of retailers to take 20 years to make money. Hmm. It's just not going to happen. So what are you seeing? You're seeing them. one of the ways to scale quicker is they're opening stores. And if you look at like Warby Parker, who just announced they're going public, they're saying their stores would now have like 65% or 60% of all their retail sales and they drive like 30% four wall EBITDA. The company, arguable, if the company's even profitable. And so what does that mean? Where are they making money versus where they're losing money? A lot of these brands who started digitally native are opening stores. And I, I often say this, if you want to profit every month, a store is a much better venue. We have two things that are driving that. One, reverse logistics. And two, customer acquisition cost. If you look at some retailers, mature physical retailers, customer acquisition cost is a fancy word for marketing. There, if you look at physical retailers, most physical retailers, they're like occupancy, which is rent, plus marketing is like sub- 20%, the combination. Many of these digitally native brands, they are north of 20% in just marketing. Warby Parker's customer acquisition cost is like 40% now. So that's a percentage of their sales. So it now take the opposite. My wife can't order four shirts, return three, pay no shipping, and the retailer make money. It's just not possible. We might like it. It's more convenient. The reality is that majority of retailers cannot afford to give free shipping. And the majority of Americans cannot afford to pay for shipping on every purchase. They don't have the disposable income to do that. It's just not possible. And so... I don't know if you saw last year when Amazon and Walmart said, like, if you're going to return it, just keep it and we'll send you another one. Don't even return the product. Did you see that? Yeah, it's not sustainable. <laughs> How, like most businesses can't do that, right? It doesn't, you don't have to be in retail right. to know this, right? right? Right. That's how, that's how costly the reverse logistics is that they said, just keep it. Right. right. Now you take retailers who don't, aren't the behemoths of Amazon and Walmart. Right, And what are we seeing? We're seeing people try to incentivize you to come to the store versus buying online. I did, and a bunch of other things. I did a my five retail real estate trends of 2022. My number one trend is more online stores will close in America than physical stores next year. And so now, is e-commerce growing? Yes, will it continue? Yes. Will it get to 30, 40% of all retail sales? I don't know. But if it hasn't already, I don't know, 5G, what, what's going to get us there? Certainly not more cost. There's only so many people who can afford convenience, right? There's only so many people who can afford convenience. Heck, there's a generation who, 
even if they can afford convenience, they're not paying another dime for it. They'll, they'll spend $20 in gas to go save 40 cents on the apples. So, um, right. So I, I think e-commerce is here to stay and physical retail does better with e-commerce and e-commerce does better with physical retail. The omni-channel experience is here to stay. Physical, most, um, most retailers often cite that when they open a store in a market, their online sales increase. When they close a store in a market, their online sales decrease. And if you need any further proof on physical retail, I believe that one of the larger store opening people in America over the next five years will be Amazon. I don't know what other proof we need that stores are matter relevant. Um, they have, they bought Whole Foods. That wasn't enough. They're opening their own banner grocery store, Amazon Fresh. They've got ghost stores. They announced they want to open up a department store. In London, they opened up a salon. They have a bookstore. They have four star. They've got more concepts than most iconic retail brands. This is the, somebody who's opening stores at scale. The tailwind is e-commerce versus brick and mortar. It's not the headwind. Online sales are no longer the headwind. I think it's proven time and time again, the physical store matters. It's where we can profit and there's going to be some churn, but I think it's who does really well at mixing these channels to create the best experience. But I believe over the next decade, it'll prove out time and time again that the most affordable place for a consumer to purchase and the business actually profit is in a store. So it's it. I mean, if I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, it's it, it's that hybrid model, right? It's that ability to be able to do both for varying reasons, right? I mean, I will tell you that when you look at, you know, there's nothing more frustrating uh, because I I used to love to go into the physical store, right? That was uh, that for me because you got to see product, you got to touch product, and there was sort of that instant gratification. I could take product with me, right? I, I would. I think you would agree with me that also that overall customer experience in physical stores has probably changed considerably um, over the years. I, I don't know that all retailers have put as much attention on that customer experience as perhaps they should. I think, you know, customers and, and, and um, companies like uh, Apple, right, have done a really nice job of showing you what a good customer experience looks like. There's others out there as well that, that do that, but there's nothing more frustrating than going into a store and sort of, you know, having uh, an associate in that store, not know much about the product, right? Or for the store itself, not to have inventory that y you can solve for that instant gratification that, that some of us are looking for. So uh, I think you're right. I mean, obviously, you know this market a lot better than I do, but that hybrid model seems to be the place where um, I think, for, again, for a lot of reasons, you'll, you'll sort of see that sort of come together. My favorite, my favorite example is Target right now. If mm -hmm. you go on the Target app, yeah, which my family uses Target all the time. I have two young children. Yeah. You can buy it online, pick it up in the store. You can buy it online. They will drop it in your trunk. Trunk. <laughs> you can get it. If they have it in the store, you can get it shipped to yeah. you in a couple hours. Or yeah. you can just go to the store and shop. We use all four. Right. Now, yeah. the challenge, 
the companies we've just named, Apple and Target, the challenge becomes, and we, and I just mentioned this with the 10 largest e-commerce retailers, that most retailers are struggling to figure out how to pay to get this store experience, right? What Target and Apple do it, for a lot of retailers is, is, is not attainable. They don't have the balance sheets sure. to do this, right? So that, that's one of the conundrums when you're looking at the mass, especially when you're looking at the local retailer. Man, that would that would be really challenging to like to get to that position that Apple or Target has done. It's not that easy, but you are right. The days of having a store where it's rack it high and let it fly are done. You need to, the in-store experience matters. Yeah, I think so. And, and I mean, I think also, uh, you know, so I, I guess uh, one of the other questions I have for you is, you know, we talk about sort of the Walmarts, the Apples, the Targets, right? Big, big chains, right? That have a lot of funding behind them. What about those smaller uh, retailers that are trying to open? Because that's a whole different world, right? They don't have that level of, of, of funding complexity, all of that behind them. So what are your what are your recommendations to them? Like, how do they make that work? Because it's it's a tough that's a tough environment. So it's 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 much different, especially if you're competing with those brands. Right. Right. So the first thing is. I think the days of general commodities, either online or physical, I don't think this is channel. I think, what are we seeing, right? It's really hard to sell Pepsi and Pampers and compete with Walmart, Target, Amazon, Costco. Like, I, I, I think the small business doing that, that's tough. That true commodity, right? And so what did we see with the DTC brands? They open up this online store where you can only get the product at their store or their online website, right? They created something new. So I think one is differentiation of merchandise. That's number one. Like what you're selling matters. Like right now, personal care, hot health and wellness, the home business, right? If you can get a niche in there, but if you're trying to sell the same things as Walmart, Target, Costco, and Amazon, I mean, that's tough. And because their margins are razor thin and they're selling such high volume, local retailer can't do that. So differentiation of product. Number two, and I think this is probably even more important, where they can win is being involved in the community. I interviewed a gentleman named David Rogers. He owns a coffee shop in St. Louis. Starbucks opens like literally like a couple spaces down. Mm-hmm not a dip in sales. You know why? Because he goes to the local school and he gives discounts to every teacher in the school on, 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 if you come up on election day and you show an I voted sign, you get free coffee, right? This guy's beloved by the community. He knows how to get involved and they support him. This is things that are very challenging, right? You always hear big chains trying to get local. It's hard for them, just as it's hard for Dave Rogers to compete with Starbucks and buy at the same level, it's hard for them to compete with him in that. And so those are two things I would recommend is differentiation of product and get into the community, get into the community. 
Yeah, I think those are really, really good points. Um, you you see all these campaigns, especially this time of year, around buy local and all of all of those components. But I, I do think you know it, it isn't a lot different than what a lot of us tr- strive for, right? And that is having a positive impact. I mean, it's been a tenant of Panasonic for years, just our influence on society and things that we can do to help improve society. And I think. You know, you talk about your the entrepreneurial spirit. Differentiation is a big part of that, right? You can't come to market as a follow on to something that's you've got to figure out a way to differentiate yourself. So I think that's actually really good advice. I'm going to put you on the spot here for a second um, and ask you. uh, So, I mean, you deal with a lot of brands. Uh, You have a lot of retailers that you work with who who. in the in the past year, let's just say, who, who's impressed you the most and, and, and why? Over the past year, I would say, like I mentioned Target, they've been amazing. I've been shocked yeah. how quickly they implemented. Um, so that's one. Uh, I'll, I'll give you one that you may, may not even heard of. Are you familiar with Joanne stores? Have you seen them? Joanne Fabrics? Oh, yes. So, yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So... They are now a publicly traded retailer and they IPO'd the beginning of this year. So let's unpack that. If anyone thought a private equity held retailer in March of 2020 was going to have such a strong position in, in Q1 of 2021 that they could IPO, they would have called you crazy. So they pivoted so quickly to buy online, pick up in store. They took advantage of the student taking class from home to do crafts projects, sell to the, hmm. um, to the uh, mom about all these things working from home and do things. They, um, they did things on like how to make your own mask and they, they soared. I was impressed because quite candidly, there were a lot of people pre-pandemic that had concerns about them. I had not heard IPO in Joanne in a long time. That fascinated me. And this is a chain that has hundreds and hundreds of stores, but there's a lot of arts and crafts players, Michael's Arts and Crafts and Hobby Lobby. At the same time, Joanne went public. Michael's got bought out by private equity. So I I found what they did fascinating. That's one. Uh, The Target thing, you know, maybe they have the balance sheet to do it, but they've done nothing but print it. It's a great customer experience. They've, they've, yeah. they've, they've mastered that for, to your point, yeah. anybody who's willing to, to approach them at any of those, those points, right. To, yeah. to do a transaction. They've done a nice job of that. I've been impressed with Dick's sporting goods. You know, nobody could play sports and, and maybe it's because sports are so hot because people want to get outside now. And there's very few sporting goods retailers left. So they're the largest, I think, on both e-commerce and on and in physical. So they've got an advantage. But they did a lot with buy online, pick up and store. Their sales went through the roof. Been impressed by them. Nike always impresses me. Um, Yeti's done an interesting thing, which is Yeti was a wholesale business. Like retailers like Amazon and Dick's sold their products. They've grown from like 10% to north of 50 direct to consumer. Most of the product that Yeti sells now is coming from their store or their online website, 
which to me is interesting and tone setting for what retailers are doing for the future. So yeah, I know, really interesting. I, I would agree with you on on all of them. I think they're they're all very interesting brands. So let me ask you one final question. Obviously, we have a new year approaching. Um, you made um, a prediction around more online stores will close, right? Then than physical stores in the coming year. But uh, what what can we expect to see uh, from the commercial real estate and sort of retail industry in, in 2022? I think, so there's a lot. One, I think we're gonna see some new concepts. So the great resignation mm-hmm. that we talk about in corporate America. Yep. So as a corporation, it's a challenge from a hiring perspective, right? Panasonic DLC. On the other side of my business, I think this is interesting because these people aren't sitting on the sidelines forever. What are they doing? They're becoming entrepreneurs and they're Mm -hmm. opening new businesses. The new business applications going on in the world are fascinating. I think you're going to see some new concepts and interesting things. As much as on one side, the great resignation is a challenge. On the other side, I don't know, it should be called like the great entrepreneurial resurgence. It's going Mm -hmm. to be interesting. It's going to lead to new concepts. I think stores are about to get more charming. So if I were to do an Ulta store, a five below, something, Dollar Tree, you name it, I'd go in there, I'd, I'd take out everything and make it look like, you know, turn the McDonald's into a Panera. That's costly. Construction costs are out of control. Retailers and landlords are working on how to use the existing space. And so I think you're going to see some things get a little more character, like, ah, let's just leave that. <laughs> I, I think, so you'll have new concepts driven by the great resignation. You'll have some uh, stores with more character give, given, driven by construction costs. I think retailers are trying new real estate products. So we're doing business with tenants we've never done business with before, who used to be in enclosed malls and now are open to open air shopping centers. Everybody talks about getting closer to the consumer. Mm -hmm. That's what they want to do. Get closer to the consumer. The closest real estate to the consumer is retail real estate. So healthcare 10 years ago said, we want to get closer to the consumer. Everything that doesn't require an overnight stay, I want out of the hospital. It's too expensive in the hospital. Now look in America, in every shopping center in America, there's like an urgent care. They successfully did that. They went, they said, we want to get close to the consumer, and boom, they did that. So when you hear things about getting closer to the consumer, I think you should start thinking like they're probably going into shopping centers. And you're looking at a lot of these GoPuffs and DoorDashes and Gorillas and Joker who are opening up these little mini distribution stores, not sure what they are in shopping centers. You're going to start to see some interesting things as people are dying to get closer to the consumer. The last mile has not been figured out. And we talked about this last mile logistics for a while. And I think you're starting to see people, the way to get closer to the consumers in retail real estate. Yeah, I think that's really, um, it is a challenge that we all try, right? How do we get closer to the consumer? That That's no doubt one of the challenges. The other thing too, that's interesting, which we talked about a lot today is sort of showing up where the customer expects you to be. So whether that's in a physical location or whether that's online or that's down the corner or that's on every block, uh, the the accomplishment of being able to show up where they want you to be um, and be prepared to, to 
approach them at that point is, is also, I think, a really interesting one. Chris, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, we could go on and on and on, but it's for been sure. a, a great conversation uh, and I definitely appreciate the perspective. So thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Brian. So before we sign off, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us grow by visiting our feed on iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe. Or if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. That's it for us. I'm Brian Rowley, and this was another episode of The Big Rethink. <laughs>